Good morning. Our New Testament reading this morning is from the book of John, chapter 6. This morning I'll be reading verses 41 through 51. John 6, 41 through 51. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Our sermon text this morning, we're in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, Peter doesn't give us too many verses for our plaques to hang on the wall, does he? Okay, well, wrapping up chapter 2 today of Peter's second letter. Uh, before we pray, just, I encourage you just to cry out for our country. Uh, we live in crazy times, don't we? Uh, we're about to put a person on the highest court in the land that can't define a woman. And the fact that... Uh, over half the people are not up in arms about that and concerned about that and worried about that. Speaks volumes of the godlessness of our society. So let's pray and just pray and ask God to, to move. We are waiting for Him. Wait means to trust. We're trusting Him. We're trusting Him with all our hearts. And we're joyful in that trusting. And uh, we're not down or discouraged. We're sad for our country. Uh, but as a, a nation of God's people, 
We're not discouraged. Everything's right on schedule. And we're pressing on with our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we will wait for you. We, we, we trust you totally. And we're waiting for the return of Jesus. Eyes are lifted to, to the heavens. And we're setting our minds. We're striving to set our minds on things above and not, not on wicked, godless, crazy, silly things of this earth. Can't define a woman. How silly can one get? So keep us fixed, Father. Keep us focused. Help your church to stand strong. In a time when many uh, who profess to be in our ranks are wilting and cowering and want to be liked and want to be thought with it and up to date and on the right side of history. God, thank you that we are on the right side of the author of history. And we pray that you would keep us strong. And unafraid. And pressing on as we, as we wait for you, as we trust you. Thank you, Lord, for granting us that feeling of need for you that we sang about earlier. Thank you for granting us repentance. Thank you for granting us faith to believe you, to believe your gospel, and to trust you, and to confess your Son as the absolute Lord of our lives and the absolute Lord of all things. So continue to grow us, Father. Continue to grow us in the grace and knowledge of who you are. And we'll give you all the thanks and all the glory. Teach us today, Father. Teach us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace your life-giving, sanctifying word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All righty. We're going to wrap up this section on false teachers today. Uh, this entire chapter has been a warning to believers about false teachers who bring in destructive heresies and deny the lordship of Christ. Uh, as we have seen, uh, Peter, under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has described these people as greedy, dishonest, immoral, arrogant, irrational, ignorant, overindulgent, and hypocritical. They are deceivers of God's people who entice them with false promises. Peter says that they follow the way of Balaam, which, as we unpacked last week, involves the love of money and sexual immorality. If you missed last week, I encourage you to, to go to our YouTube channel or to our website and either watch it or listen to it. Uh, that last Sunday, we also went to Numbers 22 and considered the account of the talking do donkey to which Peter referred in verse 16. We didn't want to just gloss over that. And uh, I want to 
kind of repeat and reemphasize that this morning as part of this introduction. uh, And I speak especially to all the mocking skeptics who make fun of us for believing that a donkey actually talked. For those people, I say this to them. That's nothing. That's nothing. When compared to other miracles recorded in Scripture that we also believe, a a talking donkey is really not a big deal. Because not only do we believe the donkey that Balaam rode actually talked, which in relative terms is a fairly minor miracle, we also believe that God created everything in the entire universe out of absolutely nothing just by speaking. There was very little effort on his part involved. He just spoke everything into existence. We also believe that that same God came into the world as a man, as a Jewish man named Jesus, who was born to a woman who had never engaged in sexual relations with her husband. We also believe that this Jesus walked the earth for 33 years without committing a single sin in thought, word, or deed. We believe that he was 100% man and 100% God. We believe that he was fully human, tempted in all things just like us, and yet at the very same time fully divine, totally and absolutely holy and perfect. And we believe that he healed sick people immediately and raised dead people to life by simply calling them out of their state of death. We believe he spoke to and cast out demons and that he calmed storms by speaking and created massive banquets out of small lunches. We also believe that this Jesus was arrested and tried and unfairly found guilty. We believe he was nailed to a cross. And guess what? We believe that this crucifixion was the payment for every one of our sins, past, present, and future. And because of this crucifixion, we are forgiven and accepted by our Creator who has now become our Heavenly Father. We also believe that God raised this Jesus from the dead on the third day, proving that his death was accepted as the payment for our sins. And because of that, we were given a new heart so that we would believe everything that God has said without wavering. We also believe that after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days teaching his disciples, and then ascended bodily. Bodily. Yeah, just went up. 
to heaven to sit at God's right hand where he is right now ruling over all things. And every Sunday, we believe that we have the joy of communing with him in a spiritual sense right here at these tables. Every Sunday, he's here. And we believe with every fiber of our being that he's coming back to take us all home. We are confident that we are bound for the promised land. So, dear skeptic, dear mocker, don't make fun of us for believing in talking donkeys. Make fun of us for the big beliefs. Make fun of us for the ones that really, really matter. And know that one day you will stand before your creator and you will uncomfortably discover that all the things we believed were true. But listen, it doesn't have to end that way for you. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sin and confess Jesus as Lord as we have done and discover the joy of believing the great truths of the Bible, and the eternal comfort of forgiveness of all your sin, including the sin of unbelief. Okay. That felt good. Today we will consider Peter's final condemnation of the false teachers. Peter holds nothing back. Don't you love that about him? He holds nothing back in giving his final words on this subject, the subject of the false teachers and the false prophets. As the Holy Spirit inspires him to use metaphorical images from nature and everyday life. For example, number one, if you're following along on your sermon sheet uh, or your seat saver, uh, verse 17 tells us, that these guys, these folks, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. Okay, what picture is that conveying? In other words, that's, that's another way of saying these people are the exact opposite of Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because of what Jesus said in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The false prophets are waterless springs. They're dry wells. They're just the opposite of Jesus. Jesus, you get rivers, unending rivers of living water. False prophets, you get a dry well. So in condemning these false teachers, Peter uses two metaphors involving water, or rather the lack of it. Waterless springs, and mists driven by storm. John MacArthur comments this way, like mirages in the hot desert sand, P- 
Peter describes the false teachers as those who promise what they cannot deliver. They are springs without water, offering spiritually thirsty, the spiritually thirsty, nothing more than false hopes of relief. So false teachers are like dry wells. Jesus is the fount of living water. False teachers look like the source of spiritual life, but they're not. He also calls them mists driven by storm. In other words, it looks like rain is coming, but the stormy winds drive the clouds away before the rain falls, and the land is left dry and parched, just like the heart's of the followers of the false teachers. So, first metaphor, springs without water, storms without rain. They they promise but can't deliver. They look good, but they're not. They're totally the opposite of Jesus. Number two, they speak loud boasts of folly to entice immature believers. Verse 18 tells us that. They speak foolish, meaningless words in in their attempt to snare the weakest of the flock, the immature, the baby Christian, or the recent convert. They speak words of boastful arrogance and exaggeration designed to impress the undiscerning. You ever notice that? If you've ever flipped around and watched some of these guys, they really sound impressive. And that's what they're trying to do. They want to impress you with, with their seemingly great knowledge and their spiritual experiences and their visions and the way God has spoke to them. I remember reading about uh, one guy said, I, yeah, I saw Jesus while I was shaving. And my question to him would be, did you keep shaving? I mean, come on. What do we read in Scripture when people saw visions of the Lord? <laughs> They're dying. They're falling on their face. They're passing out. Manoah gets a vision of the Lord, goes on into his wife and says, well, we're dead. <laughs> we're going to die. Now, these thoughts are so casual. These thoughts, they're so casual about their visions of the Lord. Nothing like the Scripture. Isaiah, you know, I saw the Lord, Isaiah chapter 6, high and lifted up, his train filled the temple. What was Isaiah's response? I'm going to keep shaving? No, woe is me, I'm doomed. Uh, the, the Hebrew literally means I'm, I'm, I'm disintegrating, I'm falling apart, I'm coming undone. Woe is me, woe, I deserve hell, condemn me, damn me. I've seen the Holy One, therefore my sin, my unholiness is magnified, and I'm I'm dead. I'm coming apart. It's over. Now, these visions of these false people are never like the Bible describes. Never. They're always very boastful and very arrogant and very, "I'm, I'm up here and you're down here. That's just the way it works. John MacArthur writes, again, I love quoting him on this issue. In our book of the month, this month, The Truth War, highly recommend. It's an old one, 
you know, about 12 years old, written during the time of the uh, emergent church movement, another, another fad that's come and gone. Uh, but the, the, the basic premise is, is, is right on. I mean, we got to fight. we got to stand. we got to contend for the truth, contend for the faith. And he writes, though their flamboyant verbosity and high-sounding rhetoric, or through, not though, through their flamboyant verbosity and high-sounding rhetoric, they fool their followers into believing that they possess deep theological scholarship, profound spiritual insight, and even direct revelations from God. I want to give you some examples of this. I love these words that uh, Dr. MacArthur uses, flamboyant verbosity. Okay, Basically words that sound good but are, are nothing, are meaningless. Flamboyant verbosity, high-sounding rhetoric. Let me give you some examples. I was back in the fall, Amy and I were, went to the pastor's conference uh, with Answers in Genesis at the Ark. Great experience there. And one of the sessions was uh, taught by Justin Peters, who's uh, one of the guys that really follow these false teachers and alert the church, okay, to their... Uh, to what's going on with them. And he, he named a lot of names and spoke of a lot of people and gave us uh, uh, some great examples of this flamboyant verbosity. Uh, now, as if you've known me from the past, I'm not afraid of naming names, but this is, you know, once removed. I name the names that I actually see and read. Not that I don't trust Justin Peters, but I'm just going to give you the words this time. If you want to know the names, you can come to me privately and I'll give you the names. But if, since I didn't see it myself, I'm not going to give the names here. But I just want to give you these examples of flamboyant verbosity by these people. Here's one. We are little gods. The real me is just like God. Now, that, that'll, grab, that'll grab the undiscerning. That'll grab the one that doesn't know the Bible. Here's another. This was at a political rally. said that Donald Trump was channeling God channeling God, and use words straight from Scripture that was describing Jesus to describe Donald Trump. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Where's the lightning? Okay, come on. (laughs) Uh, Here's one. In my prayer time, God came to me and asked me for my opinion. Here's a guy counseling God. I mean, you want to follow him, don't you? He's giving God counsel. God is asking him for his opinion about a matter. Uh, Here's one. When we pray, we give God permission to work. God needs our permission, according to this well-known teacher. Uh, Here's one that taught that Jesus went to hell and became a, quote, sin-free, born-again man. Here's one uh, of uh, a female false teacher. Uh, Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God because we are too. And then here's one, uh, a guy from uh, Bethel Church. Uh, said that Jesus came, I'm quoting him now, this is him speaking, Jesus came to me, me being him, Jesus came to me in a vision and asked me to forgive him. Jesus asked this person to forgive him. Why? 
because one of Jesus' pastors said something to offend him, like I'm doing right now. It'd be, if I named this guy's name, it would be like, okay, I, I'm saying this about him. So Jesus goes to him and asks this guy to forgive him because of one, one of his shepherds said something bad about him. How do these people have anybody listening to them? Isn't that baffling? But it shows you the state of the church in America. That so many of, these were all different people. These weren't the same people. That was what, eight, seven or eight? All different people. But have the huge followings. It's amazing. It's amazing. So, but we've got to be diligent, and we've got to press back against that, okay? So, um, let's move on. Number three. So far, we've got uh, waterless springs, mist driven by a storm. They look good, but they're not. They're dry wells. They speak flamboyant verbosity to entice the undiscerning and the immature. Okay. Third, they promise freedom but are slaves of corruption. Verse 19 tells us that. They promise freedom but are slaves of corruption. Now, how ironic is this? Slaves of sin promising freedom. But the freedom they preach is the freedom to sin without repercussion. It's the example I mentioned last week of the Gnostic heretics who taught that since body and soul are separate, you can sin all you want to in your body with a special emphasis on sexual sin because it doesn't affect your soul because your soul is totally separate from your body. The freedom to sin without repercussion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it what? Y'all know, cheap grace, cheap grace. License, the licentiousness. The, you have the license to sin because we're saved by grace and not by works. Then you can keep sinning because your forgiveness is not based on your works anyway. So just keep Sinning. What was Paul's response to that in Romans? God forbid. May it never be. Chapter 6, 7, 8. God forbid. No. May we keep on sinning that grace might increase. Never. No. That is not what grace teaches. What does grace teach? Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us, training us. Grace is a trainer. Grace is a teacher. It's not a free ticket to keep sinning so that you can get more grace. No, it's a, it's a trainer in righteousness. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. Not to keep doing it to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. 
in this present age. That's what true grace does. Not the cheap grace that the false teachers promote. True grace does the exact opposite of what the false teachers promote. Number four, they are phony believers who return to the defilements of the world. Phony believers, verses 20 to 22. Let's read that again. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you would stop right there and you say, okay, so these were saved people that lost their salvation. No, we're talking about a mental knowledge here. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture, and Scripture very clearly teaches that a true, saved, born-again person cannot lose their salvation. Jesus said, nothing can take them out of the Father's, my Father's hand, okay? Jesus said in the same, the chapter we're reading, John 6, uh, on Sunday mornings now, uh, he said that all that the Father gives me, of them I lose none of them, and I will raise them up on the last day. None are lost. Jesus loses none of them, okay? So this knowledge here is not talking about a saving knowledge. It's talking about a mental knowledge. A knowledge of the head and not a knowledge of the heart. So let's make sure we, we, we understand that. So if they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So these are people that get a mental knowledge and they move away from the world temporarily. They look good, right? They're waterless springs. They look good for a time. They are, and then they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, why is that? How can the last state become worse than the first? If the first was, their first state was, they're headed for hell. And their last state, since it was just a mental knowledge, is the same thing. They're headed for hell. Why not just the same? Why is the last state worse than they're first, okay? Well, because there are degrees of punishment in hell. If you know something, if you know the truth and reject it, there are more lashes, Jesus says, for those that just didn't know anything but never responded to God because of general revelation in nature. So the last state is worse. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, don't breathe a sigh of relief if you're a non-believer. The, the very uh, uh, beginning levels of hell are going to be bad, <laughs> are going to be very, very bad. But for the people that know, that hear the truth, get it in their head, and reject it, their punishment is worse. Listen, let's look at some scriptures as Jesus spoke of this. The people that Peter is talking about are the people that Jesus speaks of in these very chilling words, okay? In fact, I think, uh, I can't remember if it was Sproul or MacArthur that said these were the most, the, the scariest words of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 21, Jesus is speaking. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will add, and see you while we were shaving, okay? Didn't we do all these wonderful, glorious, highfalutin, flamboyant, verbose things? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. (laughs) I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So as Peter states, their final state is worse than the first. And again, the reason for that is because of the teaching of degrees of punishment in hell. Listen to Jesus once again in Luke chapter 12. Verses 47 and 48. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. So there you go. The one that knew with their head will receive a severer punishment than those that did not have the mental knowledge. As Chuck Swindle says, quote, those who never knew him will suffer a lesser degree of punishment than those who were exposed to the truth but turned away from him. You know, and what's, what's scary for me and heart, heart pounding for me right now is there may be some in here that have grown up and heard this gospel all your life but you've never you've never properly responded biblically responded Luke 12 could be talking about you you know it in your head you've heard it all your life from your parents your Sunday school teacher and your preacher you've not responded and there's no guarantee of tomorrow that that is that's heavy duty so as Peter says in verse 21 it would have been better if they had never had knowledge of the way of righteousness those who know the truth mentally and reject it will face a more severe punishment than those who have never heard Peter then concludes his lengthy description of false teachers with another uh, sort of mind-jolting metaphor. They're like dogs who love their vomit and pigs who love the mud. Again, you're not going to find 2 Peter 2.22 on the gift section in Lifeway. I miss Lifeway. I'm sorry. It's so sad they closed over there. You just have a lot of fun in there. Okay. Okay. you got to go all the way back to the corner for the theological books. You know, you got to dig through everything. Uh, okay. But I love those people in there. Uh, Josh Folks used to work in there, and uh, uh, Daryl's wife used to work in there. there oh my middle block, Daryl's wife, Daryl Harrison. Who? Huh? Melissa, yes, yes. And Melissa, if you're watching, man, I know you. I know you. Don't, uh, forgive me there. Okay, but you still love going in there and talking with them. I miss Lifeway, but yeah, you're not going to find Second uh, Peter two twenty two in the gift section there on a plaque or a needlepoint thing. Um, 
But these are very stark words that portray something that Peter's already mentioned. They portray the animalistic condition of these false teachers. Remember in verse 12, earlier in our study, he called them irrational animals and creatures of instinct. And I love the observation that uh, the uh, commentator Simon Kistemacher makes here. He says, quote, uh, here is a conclusive observation. By vomiting, the dog relieves itself of internal impurities. The sow, when it's washed, is cleansed from clinging external mud. Nevertheless, both animals return to the self-same filth. They're cleaned temporarily. They're purged temporarily. Picture of the mental knowledge of the truth of Scripture and the glorious gospel of Jesus. The mental knowledge that temporarily gets us out of the mud of the world. But if our heart is not changed, if we've still got the heart of stone, we will return to the mud and to the vomit. Peter holds nothing back in describing this. Just like false teachers always return to the filth of doctrinal error and man-centered religion to dupe their undiscerning listeners. Beloved, don't stop, let's, not, let's not let it happen. Don't let it happen. Okay? And then I've listed this fifth, although it was mentioned early, but I wanted to mention this last in verse 17. Peter gives their destiny. They are destined for the gloom of utter darkness. The gloom of utter darkness. In other words, hell forever. Hell forever. In, one, in, in the worst places of hell. Okay? Their last state is worse than the first. Hell forever. The final nail in the false teacher's coffin. Again, the total opposite of God. We saw in the metaphor of the waterless springs, totally opposite of Jesus. Jesus' rivers of living water. False teachers, dry wells. Here again, we see total opposite of God and Jesus. They're consigned to the gloom of utter darkness. This is total, the total opposite of God, of whom the Bible says in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness. No darkness at all. Also opposite of Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Follow Jesus. You never have to worry about spiritual darkness. Ever. Ever. Because you will always be walking in the light of true life, eternal life, resurrection life. Hallelujah. Well, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. And uh, don't, don't get real giddy about it because I've got a kind of a long 
conclusion this morning, okay? All right? And it's just 10 till noon, so we're doing good. Uh, but I want to wrap up by just, I want to wrap up this, what, four or five week study of false teachers with a, um, just a reminder, just a, 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 uh, a repeating clarion call to the importance of doctrine and the importance of defending doctrine. It, it really is a big deal. And to the critics who would say that I've heard before from other churches, uh, let's not be so uptight on this. Doctrine divides. No, no. Doctrine unites. Doctrine protects. I had one early, early in, in, in my career that said, you know, let's not get too uptight on this because, you know, doc, this emphasis on doctrine, that puts up fences. It puts up fences. And they, you know, again, uh, flamboyant verbosity, you know, uh, sounding real spiritual and real loving. You know, doctrine, emphasis on doctrine puts up fences that keep people out. Yeah, like wolves. Okay? Yeah, fences are good. Fences protect the sheep. And that's my calling. That's the calling of your elders. To provide oversight and protection. Doctrinal protection. Let me quote R.C. Sproul. He said, We need to realize that heresy is serious and that false doctrine is destructive. We must avoid the popular thinking that doctrine is unnecessary. When people say, all I need is Jesus, they are failing to see that there are a multitude of heretical views of Jesus. You know, who's the Jesus that you're saying you need? He goes on, we need to know the truth about Jesus, about God, and about the Holy Spirit. We need to know the truth about our own spiritual condition. Amen, Dr. Sproul. And I'll add, and we need to know how we are rescued from that spiritual condition that we were born in. Namely, the condition of spiritual death. We need to know how we are saved. We need to know how God accomplished our salvation so that we can worship Him properly. So in closing this morning, in, in wrapping up this study of false teachers, I want to take a few minutes to defend... For you, not that probably 89% of you don't need this defense. 80 to 90% of you have heard this defense, but maybe you're just started coming to this body. You're visiting our church. What I'm about to talk about right now is one of the key, if not the key doctrinal views that make us of the Reformed camp, Okay. Maybe you're new to Reformed theology. You're new to Reformed teaching. So this is especially for you. 
But because the 80, 90% of you that have heard it are so forgetful, like we all are, this will boost you. This will buoy your faith, okay? Uh, that's my prayer anyway, okay? So I want to I, I take a few minutes to give a defense for a doctrine, one of our basic doctrines, that come under constant assault, especially in America. And it has to do with the nature and the extent of Christ's atonement. And, and I believe it greatly affects how we worship Jesus. And this is very fitting because we are exactly um, four weeks from Easter. Okay? Four weeks minus two days from Good Friday. Our Good Friday service. 7 p.m. April 15th. Okay? And the big question that echoes down the halls of history is what did Jesus accomplish at the cross? What happened at the cross? And the reason I wanted to do this is because just not too long ago, and some of you were there, you, some of you were there with, you were there too, some of you were there. I was attending one of Trey's basketball games, and I, I love the the ministry there at the church, the, the basketball ministry, and it's great for the kids, and they're teaching them, and it's great. So this doesn't come across as any kind of criticism of that ministry. And every halftime, they, they give a gospel presentation. They give a gospel every halftime to the, to the fans. Praise the Lord. Okay? But on this particular day, the gospel presentation went something. I'm just going to paraphrase, sum it up. Basically, Jesus went to the cross, and I think he mentioned the resurrection. It's been a couple of months. I think he mentioned the resurrection, but his emphasis was on the cross. The work of Jesus on Good Friday and Easter. But the burden of my heart was that wasn't the emphasis. The emphasis was on what you need to do. And, and in fact, he, he overemphasized. He wanted to make sure we understood that everything that Jesus did on Good Friday and Sunday morning, everything that God did through Jesus on that mo monumental weekend was nothing without our action. And he emphasized that. So much so that when the presentation was finished, I whispered to, well, I thought I whispered. My family always tells me my whispers are. Because <laughs> <laughs> somebody heard it that wasn't supposed to hear it and mentioned it to somebody in our church. And what is this guy really like? You know, it's like, uh, anyway, uh, but I thought I whispered to Rita or I, I know Levi and Will, they heard it because they mentioned it. I said, and that's how you save yourself. And pretty much that was the emphasis. You've got to do this or everything that Jesus did won't matter. It just, it won't matter. 
Now, would I label this gentleman a false teacher? No. I thought, no, no, not at, not at this point. I don't, I, don't, I, just, I don't know him well enough. No, 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 no. Let me make sure I made, made that clear. Many Christians, especially in America, many born-again people, I mean, I was one of them. I was one of them. Many professing believers believe in the save-yourself gospel without realizing that's what they're doing. But I would say anyone that makes any work of man necessary, necessary, necessary for salvation is perverting the grace of God and denying the biblical teaching of salvation by grace alone. Would you agree with that? Okay. One may say, but Butch, Butch, I do have to make a decision. I do have to confess Christ as Lord. I do need to be baptized. Yes, you do. But why? Why? To be saved? No. You do those things because you are saved. You don't do those things to be saved. There is a huge, huge difference. Work with me now. And some of you, this will be about the hundredth time you've worked with me on this. But this is basic. This is basic to why we worship the way we do. It's, 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 it's critical. So you might say, okay, Butch, all right. Okay, I'm with you. I have another question then how would you have done the halftime gospel presentation? The exact same way I do them here. I would tell the basketball fans what Christ has done to save sinners. And that today is the day of salvation for anyone who will repent of their sin, come to him and confess his lordship. Oh, okay, I got you there. So they do have to come to Christ to be saved. No. No. When Jesus saves them, they will come to him. Do you see the difference? It's major. The act of deciding, the act of coming the act of confessing Jesus as Lord, the act of baptism, the act of whatever you want to say a Christian needs to be doing, the act of uniting with the church, whatever that act is that we label Christian, these all follow the new birth. You with me? We don't do those things to be born again. We do those things because we are born again. You might say, well, Butch, man, you're really nitpicking. No. No, no, I'm not. I really don't think I am. I love the way Tim Chester says it. 
I'm reading a little book called Forgiven to Prepare for Easter. It's kind of a 40-day, one-page reading through uh, Hebrews, I think, 7 through 12 on Christ as our mediator and what he accomplished at his death. And I love what he said on a reading a couple of days ago. He says, the one who was full of life with an indestructible life, as Hebrews 7.16 puts it, died for us so that his life might burst into ours. Now ponder that. Jesus died so that his life might burst into our lives. Let that sink in. Listen, Jesus didn't die so that he could spend the rest of eternity or the rest of this age would be more correct, I think. The rest of this evil age. Because once we get to glory, evangelism's over. Everybody's dead that's going to be there. Everybody's in hell that's going to be there. It's over. Okay? So Jesus didn't die so they could spend the rest of this evil age hoping that people would make the right decision about him. He died so that, as Chester says, his life would burst into ours. He died so that the Holy Spirit could take out our heart of stone and give us a soft heart of flesh that would believe in him. In other words, he died to actually save us. He died to purchase with his blood the faith that God would give us so that our new hearts could believe the gospel. Boy, I wish I could say it better. This doctrine is so important, I wish I could say it better. I've asked you this question as my dear church family many, many times before, but I'm going to ask it again to stir you up by way of reminder, as Peter has done in his letters, and for the benefit of visitors, guests, early att- recent attenders, okay? Here's the question. How do you view Christ? How do you view Jesus? What is your primary perception of him? Let me give you two choices. Is he the meek, gentle teacher who serves as a good moral example for the once popular WWJD movement? who makes his offer of salvation to all and died to give us the ultimate example of unselfishness and to inspire us to live right, but who has no effectual power to give salvation to anyone because he does not want to violate our sovereign, self-determinative free will. Is he the loving model of, of selflessness who died on a cross 
to make your salvation a possibility. But ultimately, you have the key to eternal life because it all depends on your decision. That's the picture the halftime gospel presentator gave to us a couple of months ago. Or, you see, the crucified, risen, and ascended King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who shed his blood to give his life effectively, to effectively purchase salvation for God's chosen people, becoming the friend of sinners by redeeming them from the curse of the law, rescuing them from the dominion of darkness, reconciling them to God the Father, and granting them new life by lovingly and graciously overriding their dead, cold, stubborn hearts through the sovereign, regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and the imperishable seed of the Word of God, and who now sits at the right hand of God the Father, at the place of power and authority, overseeing and commanding the mission of the church as he brings all his lost sheep into the family, serving as their advocate and high priest, and who will come one day to judge the living and the dead to whom all people will give an account. What's your view of Jesus? How do you see him? What's your perception of him? Which is it? Which is it? Your answer is crucial because your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. How do you view Jesus? Is he someone you've just tacked onto your life by your own sovereign self-determining decision? Or he is the one to whom every fiber of your being bows in humble, adoring, exalting adoration because he has rescued you by his grace alone from sin, death, and hell when you were his enemy and had no desire whatsoever to follow him because you had no desire in yourself to even seek him? Is he gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who asks you to allow him to save you? Or he's the king of kings and lord of lords. The almighty serpent crusher. Who has graciously and victoriously saved you by his shed blood on the cross. And given you a new heart who loves him more than anything. Beloved, do you see the difference in the two teachings? Do you see the difference? Oh, you must see the difference. You have to see the difference. One gives to man an honor that does not belong to him. He takes part. In fact, the deciding part in his salvation and diminishes the glory of Christ. Think about it. In reality, this view is an insult 
to Christ. It says that when Jesus cried out from the cross in his final dying moments, it is finished. He didn't really mean it. Or he was mistaken. Or he thought it was finished and it really wasn't. Because he's got to wait for you to be born and make a decision. Do you see the difference? According to the first few, it it wasn't really finished. It says that the cross by itself is ineffective. That it has absolutely no power. Unless and until we do something To make it effective by making the right decision. It's all up to us. The gentleman emphasized that. What Christ did means nothing without you. I pray you see the difference in that. The biblical teaching... Gives all the honor, every bit of it, every drop of it. All the honor to Christ. And this glorifies God the Father. And that's what a Christian is supposed to do. That's what a church is supposed to do. This is what we want to do. In all things. And especially in the teaching of how a person is saved. So if you're visiting with us and you're thinking about joining us, no, this is where we are. This is who we are. This is the lifeblood of this local body. Not to us, oh God. Not to us. But to your name. Be all the glory. Every bit of it. Not 99% of it. Every bit of it. So, beloved, this is the reason uh, for the memory verse we picked for this month. We want to be completely opposite of the false teachers. As 2 Timothy 2.15 says, we want to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved. Workers who have no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth especially in the area of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us at the cross and through his resurrection. So may we strive with all that we are to handle the word of truth rightly. And may the Lord protect us from those who don't. Let's pray. God, thank you for Peter's teaching to us over these last several weeks. Help us, Father, to be diligent workers who rightly handle your truth. And give us great thoughts of Jesus. For as Spurgeon said, great thoughts of Christ will guide you into the haven of peace. So God, help us to think properly about what you've done for us through Jesus. And we ask your blessing now on our time of communion with him.
And it's in his name we pray. Amen.